If you have your copy of scripture, go ahead and turn to the prophecy of Jeremiah. We're looking this evening at Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 to 41, as we continue on in this series, Glimpsing the Sun from the Shadows. We are, as Pastor Cosby has just noted, looking at various passages of the Old Testament and seeing how all of the Old Testament points to Christ in many different ways through all the different genres Through all the different literary vehicles, God has breathed out a clear revelation about Jesus. The New Testament makes that very clear, as Augustine famously said that the Old Testament was the New Testament concealed, the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed, and yet it helps us to get into the various passages where we can see that. And as we have looked at wisdom literature, and we've been spending much time in um, those various portions of the Mosaic economy, In the Pentateuch, we are now moving into the prophets, and we are looking at that great prophecy of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 41. And then I'd like us to turn over to the book of Hebrews, where we get an inspired commentary on this passage and how it brings us to the Lord Jesus. Uh, Let me just briefly pray for us again before we look at God's word together. Father in heaven, we do pray that you would breathe out a very clear word from Scripture as you have already breathed it out, that you would send your Spirit to give us that inner illumination, that you would make us to see the Lord Jesus and to hear him. We pray that you would cause us to leave this place built up in the Lord Jesus and established in the faith. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 31. And if you've read Jeremiah, you know that it's not an easy book to read or a comforting book to read. Jeremiah was appointed by God to tear down and to build up. That was the ministry the Lord gave him, to tear down and to build back up. And this is the building up um, section, as it were, and there... The Lord says through Jeremiah, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them, And I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. And I'm going to stop there and then have us turn over to Hebrews chapter 8, if you would. And having introduced that mysterious figure, Melchizedek, he was the great king priest out of Genesis 14 and explaining how Christ is a priest after the order of Melchizedek and how he can do something better than the priest under the Mosaic covenant, the Levites, how he's a better priest of a better covenant. The writer of Hebrews says this, beginning in verse 7, for if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them 
by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, when I was first called to plant a church in southeast Georgia, I had the unique opportunity of naming a church. I had never named a church, and I didn't realize how many opinions I would have of ministers around me vying to get their way in naming the church I was planning. And um, I had settled, as I was meditating on uh, the greatness of the blessings that we have in Christ in the New Covenant, and I thought, you know, there's, there's no New Covenant Presbyterian Church in any close proximity, and I, I love the, the teaching of Hebrews about the New Covenant and the blessings that we have in our great high priest and sacrifice, Jesus Christ, and the forgiveness of sins and the redemption we have and a better mediator of a better covenant and heavenly uh, entrance into the very presence of God. And so I decided I would name the church plant New Covenant Presbyterian Church. And no sooner did I do that, that uh, an elder of, I suppose at that time, 50 years came up to me and said, I, I, have you ever considered naming your church plant Covenant Presbyterian Church? And I said, well, I did, and I I really like New Covenant Presbyterian Church. And and he said, but I I thought the Presbyterians didn't believe in the New Covenant. And and I thought, oh, wow, layers, layers to peel back in fixing what's happening (laughs) before my eyes. And, And I also thought, I think everyone else wants to plant the church I was planning, at that point, but we did stick with that. I'm thankful we did, and yet what, what this gentleman was saying is, is common. There is no more difficult subject in the Bible than that of covenant theology. There is no more difficult theological struggle in the Bible than understanding the relationship between the Mosaic covenant and the new covenant, the Mosaic economy and the economy of Christ. Jonathan Edwards famously said, there is perhaps no part of divinity attended with so much intricacy and wherein orthodox divines, theologians, do so much differ as stating the precise agreement and differences between the two dispensations of Moses and Christ. Um, If we can figure this out, we can understand our Bibles. If we err, we probably will not be able to understand our Bibles well. And... Um, the passage in Jeremiah is one of the most important passages in the Bible. Here God is stating in no uncertain terms that he is going to make a second covenant. He is going to replace the Mosaic covenant. Though we believe that the Mosaic covenant was part of God's plan of redemption and that it's part of what our old theologians would call the covenant of grace, there is only one plan of salvation. There is only one way of salvation for Old and New Testament. There is 
There, is, there are not two ways of salvation. Old Testament saints were saved by faith alone in Christ alone. Hebrews chapter 11 tells us that. Moses um, forsook uh, the treasures of Egypt by faith in Christ, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater treasures than the riches of Egypt. Every Old Testament saint, Abraham, Jesus could say, Abraham saw my day and he saw it and rejoiced. Um, uh, they were saved no differently than we are. And, and yet, there are differences between the old economy and the new economy. Um, there is continuity and there is discontinuity. Um, it's important for us here, just briefly for me to say that God is always a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God in relationship to his people. There is no other way God will relate to his people than by way of covenant. Um, I'll use a big word. Covenant is the architectonic principle of the Bible. If God reveals anything, it is by way of covenant. He condescends to enter into a covenantal relationship with his people, and he will ultimately be the one that keeps the covenant stipulations for his people. Um, that is not always as evident when we're reading the Old Testament. There's a lot of, there are a lot of covenant conditions in the Mosaic Law. Um, we see those so clearly set out. Uh, if we read through the 613 commandments that God gave Israel uh, by the hand of Moses at Sinai, there are a lot of, of stipulations. And, and the Apostle Paul makes clear that God expects his law to be kept. He requires that his law is kept. Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things written in the book of the law to do them. And that, that is a heavy burden. Um, we're going to see tonight that it's an impossible standard and that there was a deficiency with the former covenant, the Mosaic covenant, because of the deficiency of the people, and that the remedy is found in God entering into a new covenant that he will fulfill in Jesus Christ himself. Um, well, the question as we look at this passage tonight, why, why do we need a new covenant? Why is there a need? Well, notice the Lord very clearly states what he's going to do. The days are coming. Now, remember that God is prophesying through Jeremiah about the days that are coming of judgment, that they're going to go into captivity, that they are going to be taken captive, and they, they are going to receive, as it were, the covenant curses for their unfaithfulness. Um, this is the great plight of Jeremiah. God is simultaneously saying through Jeremiah that, that his people are going to be subject to covenant curses, which is not just a light little disciplinary action for Israel— don't miss this. It's actually God un, undoing the covenant he made with Abraham because God had called Abraham out of Ur of Chaldee, and now God is sending Israel back into the place where Abraham had been called out of. This is covenant reversal. God is essentially saying, I am casting you off. He, he actually uses the language of divorce, that he is, he is divorcing his people. It's the strongest possible language God can use to explain his righteous, holy covenant judgment is that the people had 
forsaken him. And they had not just started doing that. They had done it, remember, from the very day when Moses was on the mountain, as you're reading through Exodus, and God is giving Moses all these, all these uh, ceremonial rituals and all of the, the parts of, of tabernacle worship for Israel. And he's revealing this beautiful picture of the heavenly um, picture being pressed down on the earthly form. And God is going to come and dwell with his people. And what are the people doing at the foot of the mountain as you're reading through this? They're making idols. They, they've, actually, they've actually convinced the high priest, one of the mediators of the old covenant, to make an idol for them, a golden calf. From day one, they have been covenantally unfaithful. And there's sort of always this hope as we go through the Old Testament. There's a there's a hope, and, and if you were an Israelite, you might anticipate that hope that maybe there's a day coming when the people will be faithful, and, and maybe it's going to be David, but then David's unfaithful. Maybe it will be Solomon under the reign of Solomon, but Solomon is unfaithful, and every king is unfaithful, and every single generation of Israel is and I've said this, becomes just like or worse than the nations around them. And, and there's a sense where when we come to the prophets and God is foretelling the Babylonian captivity that, that you are to get a sense, though God is not um, ever um, impatient, that the Lord is done with these unfaithful people. Um, turn back to Jeremiah 17 with me and notice verse 1. Jeremiah 17, 1, the sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron, with a point of diamond. It is engraved on the tablet of their heart. Now that language is going to become significant in the promise of the new covenant. But here notice, their sin is engraved on the tablet of their heart. And then notice that verse that you'll know so well, verse 9. The heart, the Lord says, is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And then when we come to chapter 25, God will tell Jeremiah to put before Israel and Judah and before the nations the cup of his wrath. And he'll, he'll say, and if the people say, we don't want to drink it, he'll say, no, you're going to drink it. And And... Their, their hearts are so corrupt and depraved and bent toward evil that they never do what God wants, and so they will now drink the cup of his wrath. And that will come at this point historically in the form of invading nations coming to oppress them and take them captive, coming to pull them out of the land. And the Lord is essentially saying, and this is so important, I'm done with this people, I'm done with this land, I will no longer dwell in this land. And if that's all the Lord said, there would be no hope. And there would really be no point of him predicting this judgment. Um, Everywhere in scripture, when God uh, sends a prophet to predictive judgment, it's always with the hope of repentance and mercy. Otherwise, God could just wipe everyone out for all eternity. Um. But the people need a new nature. That's the first thing we want to see. They need a new nature. Their sin is inscribed on their hearts. 
And so it's interesting when God comes to say, I'm going to make a new covenant, the very first thing he says, and this is so very important, the very first thing he says is not, I will forgive your sins and your lawless deeds, I will remember no more, which is the part of the new covenant we love so much. He says, I will, I will put my laws in their mind and I will write them on their hearts. Isn't that interesting? Their sin Jeremiah said in 17.1, is engraven on their hearts, and God says, I will put my law in their minds, and I will write it on their hearts. They need a new nature. The old covenant under the Mosaic mediatorship and under the kings of Israel could never give someone a new heart. It was, it was completely external. Now, there was grace in the old covenant, This is why we say it was all part of the covenant of grace, but the Mosaic covenant itself was a very externalized form of God giving his revealed will that could never change the hearts of men. That was the weakness of the old covenant. Not one person ever had their heart changed by Moses or the law in and of itself. There was a weakness to the sacrificial system. There was a weakness to the priesthood. The priests died one after another after another. The sacrifices were offered one after another after another. It was never enough. There was never what was sufficient. It was all temporal. It was all provisional. It was all external. It had a nationalistic element to it. And therefore, the Lord is saying, I'm going to make a new covenant, and I'm going to do what couldn't have been done. Notice the great unilateral aspect of this new covenant. Notice the I wills of God's covenant promise. This is some of the sweetest stuff to lay hold of in the Bible. Notice the Lord never says, you will do this, and then I will do this. So so very important. Notice what he says. He says, I will make a new covenant I will put my laws within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sins no more. On the, on the very front end of the prophecy of the new covenant is the unilateral grace of God. Saying, I am going to do what you cannot do for yourself. I am going to do what I bound myself to do for my people. John Owen, the great Puritan theologian, says this, and listen carefully. He says, God gives this promise of a new covenant together with a complaint against the people. So he gives the promise of the new covenant while he's complaining against the people. This is remarkable. He's not not giving the promise of the new covenant because the people have adequately repented. He's not saying, well, because now they have done what's right in my sight, now I will give them this. No, he's complaining against their evil, and he says, I am going to do something new. And, and notice this, Owen says, he does that so that it might be known to be an effect of free and sovereign grace. Isn't that amazing? He gives the promise while he's complaining about their sins so that they would know what happens is going to be free and sovereign grace. He says there was nothing in the people to procure it or to qualify them for it unless it was that they had wickedly broken the former. God has oftentimes just cause to complain against his people when yet he will not utterly cast them off. It is mere mercy and grace that the church at all seasons lives upon. It is mere mercy and grace that the church at all 
seasons lives upon. You know, I sometimes think back to my conversion, and I've shared it with you. I was in tons of darkness. I was at rock bottom. I didn't clean myself up. I found myself in desperation, saying, Lord Jesus, I need your blood, and didn't even know I was praying. It was all sovereign grace. If, if you've been converted, even if it was when you were very young as a child, it's all sovereign grace. There was nothing you contributed to it. Um, John Gerstner used to say the only thing that you contribute to your salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. Your sin is the soil in which the tulip of God's grace grows. I like that. <laughs> it's, it's just dirt. And, it, and it's, it needs to be amended. We need new natures. And God is promising, I will put my law within them. I will, I will make them want to do what is right. That's, that's going to be the result of it. I will make them love to pursue me and my ways. I will make them hate what is sinful. I will make them want to walk uprightly. Um, I have a friend in ministry who says, if you are unregenerate, God has never changed your heart, and you want to do what is right, it is a futile exercise because you will never be able to do so. So God has to change the heart, put his laws in them, make us love what is right, and make us run the course of his commandments. Now, the second thing that we see why do we need a new covenant is we not only need a new heart, a new nature, we need new communion. And notice that the Lord says to his people that um, in, verse, uh, in verse 33, I will be their God and they will be my people. Now that's been the covenant promise throughout. That's what God told Abraham. Now, I don't want to run the risk of confusing you tonight, but if I could try. Um, The Abrahamic covenant and the new covenant are the same in substance. The Abrahamic covenant is not the Mosaic covenant. God is not saying the Abrahamic covenant is going to pass away and I'm going to make new covenant. In fact, the the book of Hebrews and the book of Galatians tells us that, that God is merely fulfilling what he already promised to Abraham by bringing about the new covenant and bringing it to fruition and and fulfilling it in Jesus Christ. So that if you're Christ, Paul says, you are Abraham's. I've always loved that my Reformed Baptist friends have their children sing, Father Abraham had many sons, and I am one of them, and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord, right arm, left arm, right foot, left foot. Because that's covenant theology. If you're Christ, you're Abraham's. Um, God said, I will be your God You will be my people. Notice what he says here. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. They will all know me. This doesn't mean that Abraham and before him Noah and after him David and the many saints in the Old Testament didn't know the Lord. They did. They had communion with the Lord. They knew him. Um... And this is where the new covenant uh, has an expansion principle. God's people are not just going to be sequestered to Israel. This is going to be for the nations. A people who had not known him will know him. A people who had not obtained mercy, Malachi says, will obtain mercy. A people called not my people will be my people. And Peter says that was 
referencing the Gentile believers, us, that, that God is saying all of my people will be part of the true Israel. They will, they will be brought in. They will come to know me. They will be brought into fellowship with me. And, and in a, a richer and fuller way even, we, we have more revelation. We know who the Redeemer is. We know how the covenant is kept. We know what it cost for the blessings of the covenant to come to us. We, we know when we read the book of Hebrews, it, it says that, that we have a new and a living way directly into the presence of God, that in the old covenant, the priest alone could go into the most holy place. You could never have gone into the presence of God without his mediation, and, and only with blood for himself and, and for the people. But now, the writer of Hebrews says, with, with the veil of Christ's flesh being torn on the cross, that, that it's as if the heavens have been rent open, and we go directly into the presence of God through a better mediator of a better covenant. There is more full and free access to God in the new covenant. Um, there is a definitiveness. This is important. One of the only differences between what we ought to experience as new covenant believers in contrast with those who are still under the mosaic is that we know that the sacrifice has been offered that it's done, that it's finished, that there's n- there no longer remains any consciousness of sin. That's, the writer of Hebrews doesn't say there no longer needs to be a sacrifice. He says there no longer remains a consciousness of sin. That means there no longer lays on us that question, when will the Redeemer come and how will God bring an end to sin? I know that it's not in these bulls and these goats and, and, and believers of the Old Covenant were looking past that, but, but we know that what God has done. We know more about God. We, know, we can know him with, with a greater certainty of definitiveness based on what he's done for us. That is an enormous blessing for New Covenant saints. That might be the biggest difference between saints in the Old Testament and saints in the New Testament. They had their sins forgiven them retrospectively. When we came to Christ, we we have the assurance that they've already been dealt with. The first day we believed in Jesus, the Spirit made us realize our sins are forgiven. And that is so much a part, isn't it, of communion. Notice, finally, he says, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. I want to run the risk of confusing you again and, and say there was something about the Mosaic Covenant that on the basis of God's infinite holiness, he could not forget your sins. So um, the great, one of the great problems for us when we consider the law of God, is that if there's nothing interposing between God and my violations of the law, I'm done. It's just condemnation. This is why the Mosaic Covenant had the lightning and the thundering and the sound of a voice that, that threatened for them not to come close. And if a beast even so much touched, it, touched the mountain, it should be killed. Um, there, there was a, 
there was a terror. There was a terror that came with the Mosaic law. And justly so, because God is holy. But God is saying, I'm going to make a new covenant, and your sins and your lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, that's amazing. Um, I'm cursed with a very long memory, which means if you do something to me unjust, I will fight against bitterness in my heart the rest of my life because I will remember something you said to me that you will forget 18 years ago. And um, some people are blessed with short memories. Um, God has the longest memory ever. He is infinite in his knowledge. He knows everything from all eternity. He knows a word before we even speak it. He has ordained whatsoever comes to pass. He knows our sitting down and our rising up. There's not a word on our tongue that he doesn't know it all together. And that means he knows all of the vile and wicked things of my heart and mine. He knows all the ungodly things I've said and done and you've said and done. And for the Lord to say, I'm going to give you a new heart I'm going to write my law in your heart. You're going to know me, all my people, all over the face of the earth, for all eternity are going to know me. And I'm going to remember your sins and your lawless deeds no more. That's astonishing. Um, The Old Testament prophets, they go to great length to try to find ways to explain this. Isaiah will talk about God blotting out like an ink blotter. And, And... uh, I believe it's Micah will speak about God casting, casting our sins into the depths of the sea. And the psalmist will say, as far as the east is from the west, he'll remember our sins no more. And God is saying, in the new covenant, I'm going to definitively, definitively, legally deal with your sins so that there will be no record of transgression against you, ever. Now, The question is, how does he do this? And he doesn't tell us here. But thirdly, and very briefly, I want us to consider that the the prophecy of the new covenant is um, anticipating a new covenant keeper. And that's what the book of Hebrews is telling us. You know, when Jesus comes to Israel, when the covenant Lord comes in the flesh, um, it is as every bit apostate as it ever was. Uh, The religious leaders are every bit as corrupt as those that went before them generation after generation. Jesus said, your fathers killed the prophets and you adorned their graves, just like them in every way. Whitewashed sepulchers, um, misleading the people, deceiving the people. That was one of Jeremiah's greatest indictments against Israel. Chapter 23 was the false prophets who were saying it's going to be okay. We'll come back from captivity. It's not going to be that bad. And, and false teachers and false prophets, and when Jesus came, it is darkness. The nation that should have been light is darkness. And, and this is marvelous. The first time in the New Testament when we read about the new covenant is on the night when Jesus is betrayed. And he takes his disciples up to the upper room. And he takes the cup. And he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the remission of sins. And he gives them the cup of blessing. And he says, this is going to symbolize 
and seal the blessings of what Jeremiah prophesied. And he is essentially saying, I am the new covenant keeper, and I am going to do what's necessary to secure the blessings of the new covenant for you. Um, It's very interesting. Jeremiah had talked about the cup in Jeremiah 25, the cup of God's wrath that Jeremiah was to put before Israel and the nations and tell them that they were going to have to drink that cup. And, and I've always thought this was astonishing. On the same night when Jesus handed his disciples the cup of the new covenant and said, this is the new covenant in my blood, he would go from the upper room to the garden and the father would put a cup in front of the son. And, and the son would, would cry out in, in soul dereliction if there's any other way possible. Because he knows what that cup means. He knows that that cup is the wrath of God. He knows that that cup is the cup his people ought to be drinking, you and me. That's the cup the Father should have put in front of us. And, and Jonathan Edwards says it's as if uh, Christ is going up to the fiery furnace like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when, when Nebuchadnezzar had them taken up to the mouth of the furnace to look in, that that cup is the furnace of the wrath of God for your sin. And Jesus is having to look in, and, and the Father is answering him and saying, my son, there is no other way. Um, and on the cross, the Father will put that cup to the lips of the Savior, and Jesus will cry out, and it's interesting, he'll cry out, I thirst. And that thirst will be emblematic of the thirst of the rich man in hell in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And it will be the thirst of the unrighteous in the Old Testament. And, and the son will drink the cup to the full. As the hymn writer says, he will drain the last dark drop. And then, as that hymn says, tis empty now for me. Tis empty now for me. You know, if there is one battle that I would assume if you are a regenerate Christian who has been given a new heart and have been brought into new communion with God, Um, and yet who struggle with sin and feel the weight of your sin, your indwelling sin, if there's one battle, I would guess it would be believing that Christ has really drank to the dregs the cup of God's wrath. And the book of Hebrews is written so that you would come to terms with that is the purpose of God making a new covenant that there's nothing left for you to do but to embrace him, to continue trusting in him, and to follow him. You know, the writer of Hebrews gives us these phrases, and it's really interesting how he juxtaposes them throughout that letter. And, and he'll say things like, consider him. He'll say, looking unto Jesus. He'll say, we see Jesus. It's, it's as if he's trying to use sensory perception language to reach into your soul and to say to you, are you seeing Jesus with the eyes of faith? Are you seeing him who was made a little lower than the angels, who was crowned with suffering of death that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for you? 
Are you considering him who was made perfect through his sufferings? Are you looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high? You know, Jeremiah's prophecy of the new covenant and the writer of Hebrews' explanation of how Jesus has kept it and fulfilled it for us is what gets you to heaven. This is, this is what carries you to heaven. Right here. No amount of do better, try harder, fix yourself, beat yourself up, make reparations for your sin, nothing. Yes, we are called to live holy lives every day of our life. We are redeemed to live holy lives, but that in no way whatsoever fulfills the the legal conditions or the promises of the new covenant. Christ has fulfilled all that in himself for you, if you're a believer. You know, I want to just point out to you here briefly, notice notice verse 3 of chapter 31. I've always thought this was interesting and not always connected. Jeremiah 31, prophecy of the new covenant. And notice verse 3 at the beginning of this section. The Lord says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Why why does he do this? Why, Why does the covenant Lord against whom we have sinned so grievously, why does he make a new covenant to give us a new heart and bring us into new communion and to fulfill everything for us in Christ, it's because he says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. I've quoted this this quote, and I'll quote it to you here at the end. Uh, Gerhardus Voss, meditating on Jeremiah 31.3, says, the best proof that God will never cease to love us lies in that he never began. I've loved you with an everlasting love. The best proof that he'll never stop loving you is that he never started. I want to encourage you as you press into this new week and continue your pilgrimage through this barren wilderness of this world. You fight against your sin. You do not lose sight of the fact that God has already blessed you if you're in Christ. You are an heir of the covenant promises. You are the object of God's eternal love. And he will remember your sins and your lawless deeds no more. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you for what you have done in making a new covenant. Lord, we would be hopeless and helpless if you had not. We thank you that you have sent your Son to be the covenant-keeping Redeemer. Lord Jesus, we thank you that your blood shed at the cross is the blood of the new covenant, that you have atoned for every single sin we have or will commit. We thank you and praise you, our God, that you have sent your Spirit to write your laws in our minds and in our hearts, and we pray that you would make us a people who uh, desire deeper communion with you this week ahead. We pray that you would give us a sense of the definitiveness of the blessings that we have 
because of what you've done in the new covenant, we pray that you would make us a people who rejoice and who draw near, and a people who, out of gratitude, pursue holiness in our lives. We do pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.